Welcome to Defenders, the teaching class of Dr. William Lane Craig. Today, the Doctrine of the Trinity, Part 9. For more information and resources from Dr. Craig, go to reasonablefaith.org. We left off our discussion of the Trinity last time by saying that the doctrine of the Trinity, that there are three persons who are one being, is a logically coherent doctrine when properly understood. But that still leaves us with the question, how can three distinct persons be one being? How can you have three divine persons who are together one being? Well, maybe we can get a start at this question by means of an analogy. Now, I want to caution that there is no reason to think that there has to be uh, an analogy to the doctrine of the Trinity among created things. But I think that analogies can be helpful as a springboard, so to speak, for philosophical reflection and for accurate formulation. So consider this analogy. In Greco-Roman mythology, one of the labors of Hercules was to subdue the ferocious three-headed dog named Kerberos who guarded the gates of Hades. Now, we can suppose that Kerberos, having three heads, must have had three brains, and therefore three distinct states of consciousness. Uh, And each one would be whatever it's like to be a dog. Therefore, Kerberos, although uh, he is a sentient being, doesn't have a unified consciousness. Rather, he has three consciousnesses. Even though he's one being, uh, he has three consciousnesses. And we could even give proper names to each of these consciousnesses. Uh, For example, uh, rather whimsically, we can refer to them as Rover, Bowser, and Spike. And these three centers of consciousness are entirely discrete, and when you think about it, they might even come into conflict um, with one another. Still, uh, in order for Kerberos to be viable as a biological organism, not to speak of being able to function effectively as a guard dog, there has to be a considerable degree of cooperation among these three consciousnesses, Rover, Bowser, and Spike. Now, despite the diversity of his three mental states, Kerberos is clearly, I think, one dog. He is a single biological organism exemplifying a canine nature of some sort. Rover, Bowser, and Spike may also be said to be canine even though they're not three dogs. They're parts or aspects of the one three-headed dog, Kerberos. So if Hercules were attempting to enter into Hades and Spike snarled at him or bit him on the leg, uh, Hercules might well say, Kerberos snarled at me or Kerberos attacked me. Now I have to confess that the church fathers would have resisted analogies like Kerberos. Um, But I think once you give up the doctrine of divine simplicity, that God has no 
aspects or distinctions within his being, then Kerberos, I think, does seem to um, be what St. Augustine called an image of the Trinity among creatures. These are not exact analogies, but they are sort of a, a shadow image of what the Trinity is among creatures. You have here one biological organism, one dog, which has three centers of consciousness. Now, we can enhance the Kerberos story by imagining that Kerberos is rational and has self-consciousness. In that case, Rover, Bowser, and Spike are plausibly personal agents. They are self-conscious, personal agents. And Kerberos would therefore be a tri-personal being. Now, if we were asked what makes Kerberos a single being, despite his three minds, um, I think we doubtlessly reply that it's because he has a single physical body. It's because he is a single biological organism that we would say Kerberos is one thing even though he has three mental states, three persons. But think about this. Suppose Kerberos were to be killed and his minds survive the death of his body. Suppose they're uh, immortal and live beyond the death of his body. In what sense would they then still be one being? How would those three persons differ intrinsically from three exactly similar minds which have always been unembodied. Do you see that the question if he's one being because he is embodied in this canine organism, if the three minds survive the death of the body, how would they be any different than three minds that have just always existed unembodied? What would make them one being anymore as opposed to three separate beings. And in the case of the Trinity, since the divine persons are, at least prior to the Incarnation, unembodied, then we can ask, why do we have here three, or why do we have here one being rather than three individual beings? Well, this is a, a difficult question, but maybe we can get some insight on it by reflecting on the nature of the soul. Souls are immaterial substances. Uh, and some philosophers think that uh, animals have souls as well as human beings. On this view, souls come in a wide spectrum of varying capacities and faculties. For example, higher animals like chimpanzees and dolphins uh, have souls that are more richly endowed than the souls of lower animals like turtles and iguanas. What makes the human soul a person is the fact that the human soul is equipped with rational faculties of intellect and volition which enable it to be a self-reflective agent capable of self-determination. Uh, animals don't have souls that are so richly endowed as to be self-reflective agents capable of self-determination. Now, 
when you think about it, God is very much like an unembodied soul. Um, in fact, as a mental substance, God just seems to be a soul uh, of some sort. Now, we normally would equate a rational soul with a person, but that's because the human souls that we're acquainted with are persons. In, in our experience, all of the rational souls that we're familiar with are individual persons. But the reason that human souls are individual persons is because each soul is equipped with one set of rational faculties which are sufficient for being a person. Suppose then that God is a soul which is endowed with three complete sets of rational faculties, each of which is sufficient for personhood. In that case, God, though one soul, would not be one person, but rather he would be three persons. For God would have three centers of self-consciousness, intentionality, and volition. God would clearly not be three discrete souls, because these cognitive faculties are all faculties of just one soul. So God would be one soul which is tri-personal in nature. So just as our individual souls support one person because they are equipped with one set of rational faculties sufficient for personhood, we can think of God as a soul which is equipped with three sets of rational faculties, each sufficient for personhood. And this sort of model, I think, would seem to give a clear sense to the classical formula, three persons in one substance. So that's the model of the Trinity that I want to propose as a possibility. Is there any discussion of that model? Okay, Cody down here in the front. Steve has a question. I wasn't here last week, so I don't know if somebody's asked this question yet, but I did want to ask, uh, is it possible for any of the three persons to disagree with one another or say, like, because, you know, like in our experience, like you can have three persons, but right. one, what if one disagrees with the other? Like, I want to do this. I said, no, no, we right. want to do this instead. Right. Like, is that possible to happen in the Godhead? And if not, how does that affect the idea of God having free will? Okay, I don't think it's possible. I kind of gave a hint at that when I talked about Kerberos, where you could have these three minds that you could imagine snarling at each other, and, or three heads snarling at each other and, and getting in conflict. But with God, I think what we want to say is that he is always in harmony with respect to what he knows, loves, and wills. And there's a classical doctrine, um, especially among the Greek church fathers, uh, called perichoresis, which helps to illuminate this. According to the doctrine of perichoresis, there is a kind of interpenetration of the divine life among the persons of the Trinity, considered um, in abstraction from the world, because God existing alone, just the, the three persons. What the Father wills, the Son and the Spirit also will. What the Father loves, the Son and the Spirit also love. What the 
Father knows, the Son and the Spirit also know. So that there's a complete unity and interpenetration of love, will, and knowledge among these three distinct persons, so that disagreement would be impossible. And I think that makes good sense in light of their perfect goodness, their perfect knowledge. Uh, it would seem that they would always be in harmony with each other. Okay. Uh, and in light of that, and maybe this relates more to the incarnation, though, but, you know, when Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, now, you know, he, so he kind of asks, take this cup away from me. Now, granted, <clears throat> he goes through with it in the end, obviously, but there is still that moment where he kind of goes like, you know, he's basically saying, like, do I right. really have to do this? Like, I kind of don't want to, and... How might that, or would that, would that be, would that have something more to do with the incarnation, perhaps? Well, I think it is or... intimately connected with the incarnation. That here we see the Logos, the second person of the Trinity, in his so-called state of humiliation, this state in which he has given up his glory and magnificence that he had with the Father before the world began, and has entered into this state in which he identifies with human beings in their fallenness and finitude. And as such, experiences all the limitations of human finitude. Physically, he could grow tired, he could feel pain, he could uh, get weary, uh, he could get hungry or thirsty. Mentally, he didn't know everything that was going on. He had to ask questions. The scripture says that the boy Jesus increased in wisdom and knowledge as he grew older. Um, he grew morally. The book of Hebrews says that he was uh, perfected through what he suffered. So all of these would have relation to his human nature. And so I would say in his human nature, Christ can pray to the Father, let this cup pass from me, nevertheless not my will, but thine be done. We'll talk more about that when we get to the doctrine of Christ, but you're quite right in seeing it intimately connected with the doctrine of the Trinity. James? Um, Bill, I was, uh, the last couple of weeks I've, I've been trying to get my mind around this because it's just mm. difficult, but I found something in my uh, old systematic theology book that I just wanted to, to, to get your opinion on, but um, um, Louis Burkhoff, a Reformed theologian from yes. about 100 years ago. Um, it says that, um, um, as, as far as the Trinity is concerned here, it brings distinction and distribution, but no diversity or division into divine being. And let me go on with the definition here. Uh, this is a definition of, of uh, what he gives. The following necessary act of the first person in the Trinity, whereby he within the divine being is the ground of a second personal subsistence like his, own, like his own and puts this second person in possession of the whole divine essence without division, alienation, or change. Basically what he's saying there is that there is a, there is a distribution, but since, the, there is a, but since God is infinite, there is an infinite distribution into the second, and I, and I guess also by extension, the third persons of the Trinity, um, I'm just wondering if, uh, if, if you have any thoughts on that. But, but then to me also it raises a question, which is a speculative question in nature, which is then why the number three? Oh. If, God could, if, if God is infinite and can infinitely distribute himself, why not an infinite distribution? Why, why three? Yeah, uh, I don't think, to answer the last question first, 
that any theologian, orthodox theologian I know of, think of the threeness of the Godhead as something that's due to God's will. That it's not as though he said, okay, let's be three persons rather than four or five. That rather this is an essential property of the Trinitarian nature. That uh, there couldn't have been more than three persons. This is an essential property of God, just like omnipotence, omniscience, or moral perfection. But with respect to the first question, I think it's really important when we hear these theological formulations that we demand clear meanings of them, that these aren't just fancy words, but they have clear meanings. Now, certainly, I think we'd want to agree, as I said with Cody, that there isn't alienation among the persons of the Trinity, or I think he said change. I, I think that's true. But diversity, he, he affirmed distinctness. I don't see how you can have distinctness without diversity. That, that would be what I understand by diversity. And I would say that that kind of distinctness or diversity is necessary in virtue of there being three persons. I take very seriously and literally the idea that we have here three first-person perspectives, each of which can say, I think that, and stands to the other in an I-thou relationship. You think that, I think that. And so we have three centers of self-consciousness, which are therefore necessarily distinct and diverse. Now, there are views of the Trinity that deny that. Um, sometimes the view that I'm laying out here is called a social Trinitarianism, which takes very seriously and literally the three persons or centers of self-consciousness. Um, So-called Latin Trinitarianism that characterizes people like Thomas Aquinas tends to think of the three persons of the Trinity as just relations. That insofar as the Father is the, God is the subject, insofar as God is the subject, he is I. And insofar as he is the object, he is the Son. And it seems to me that that's no different than when I think of me. Or if I love myself, me is the object of my love. Or if I um, even hit myself, me is simply the object of I. But it's the same person. So I don't think those kinds of views of the Trinity take seriously enough the notion that we have here three distinct persons, each of which is a first person or has a first person perspective on things. Um, one of my favorite G.K. Chesterton quotes is, he says that um, paganism was all the rage, then Christianity became the biggest thing, and everything since then has been boring. 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 <laughs> and, uh, and the Trinity, I think, is connected with that. Like, yeah. what doctrine is like the Trinity? Um, and in connection with that, too, when I've, a couple of times I've talked, this is just more of a conversational apologetics kind of thing. Um, when I've talked to some very scientifically minded people, you know, they quote people like Dawkins to say, if you think you understand quantum theory, then mm. you don't really understand quantum theory. And I've kind of used the Trinity sometimes when I've, after I've explained the Trinity, because they've asked questions and they go like, it's just hard for me to understand. And it's like, well, then that should fit right in 
with what you think about quantum theory mm. and uh, why not embrace that part of it? I mean, the yeah. Trinity is like the deepest part of theology and, that, and that's why it's hard for us to wrap our brain around. Anyway. Right. The reason scientists believe in quantum theory is because there's good evidence for it, right? right? Mm -hmm. Even if it's very, very difficult to understand and perhaps nobody can make sense out of it. Similarly, with respect to the Trinity, I think what we would want to say is there's good evidence to believe that God exists and that he's revealed himself in a unique way in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, who was himself divine. So what I've proposed here is not an attempt to say this is the way it is. That would be presumptuous. That would be what Martin Luther would call a theology of glory, where you claim to have special insight into the divine being. What I've suggested is this is a coherent model. This makes sense of the doctrine and therefore removes any rational objection to it that Muslims, cultists, or other Unitarians might propose. And I, I think this is a, a really good model for thinking of the Trinity. But as I say, it is just a possibility. Dr. Bob. Two very different comments. The first okay. one is maybe we could Maybe I would modify your, your concept just a little by saying this. We don't know much at all about the soul, do we? I mean, we, don't, we have some hints in Scripture that the spirit is a division of the soul, which is especially responsible for our communication with God, and that's mm -hmm. what has to be regenerated when we're saved. So if we got that division, maybe we have many other divisions too. And frankly, I don't know any way on this side of eternity to know what those divisions are. But maybe if we think of the three members of the Trinity as sharing portions of their soul, we don't know, rather than having the same soul, which I know you don't mean completely, because if you had the exact same soul, you'd have the same uh, volition and personality and awareness. But maybe they share enough, whatever the subdivisions of these souls are, that you would say the same essence, but of mm -hmm. course then retain their individuality. Um, as you have said, by maintaining that for yourself. So maybe yeah. they don't have to have the exact same soul, but you, you know, people are, are spoken of as soulmates. Like, yeah. they, they, that they, as, it's impossible for, for us to share our soul with somebody yeah. else, but maybe the Trinity the, I, is I just want to resist any slide into tri-theism. Uh, you've got to have one being here, which is God. And so we have to be very careful lest you get three souls, like Kerber's, when he dies, you, you seem to have these three I agree. canine I souls. I wouldn't push it that far, but wouldn't you think you could have, the essence is, is being the same, you do have one yeah. God. If enough of the soul is shared, this would be known only to God. I mean, I, there's, we don't know how much has to be shared, yeah. but enough is shared that it is one God. There's not three gods, you know, that's what right. I'm saying. Now, another thing. I've always had problems with this idea that in Gethsemane, Jesus was afraid to die on the cross and that he had to know essentially all his days that he was, he was here to be sacrificed. I mean, he, he, he told his disciples, I'm going and I'm coming back. He had to know that. And with all the strength he had, I, I, I just have found that difficult to believe. So I want to throw this out. It may be a little controversial. Some of you may have heard it, and maybe some of you haven't. If you look at Hebrews 5, 7, during the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears 
to the one who could save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. Now, I'm told that in the Greek, the, the structure is that God answered that prayer in the affirmative. So we all say, well, how could he have done that? He had to go to the cross. Hmm. Yes, if the cup is going to the cross. But I have come to believe that Satan tried to kill him physically in the uh, Garden of Gethsemane, and that's what he was praying for, don't let him kill me so that I can go to the cross. So God answered that in the affirmative. Uh -huh. He died on the cross rather than dying from Satan. Now, you, if you think of the story, remember how he told the disciples to stay away and stay back? He may have just been under physical, Satan may have just been pulling out every bit of power he had to deprive Christ of his life to keep him from going to the cross. Yeah. This is a, a theory. There's quite a few people that agree with One of them is Vernon McGee, who's a well-known, he died several years ago, but he, he's a well-known Bible teacher who now has through the Bible with Vernon McGee going all around the world. And when I first heard that, I thought I didn't agree with it. But over the decades, I've come yeah. to agree. So I'll just throw that out. All right. Well, you're certainly free to throw it out. I, I think that one would be desirous of having more yeah, chances throw it out. Yeah, that's right. Uh, one would uh, be desirous of having a better textual warrant for it. It, it seems like one is uh, one has a sort of gap there, and so you just make up this hypothesis to stick in the gap without any textual warrant for saying that that's what was going on. Whereas, whereas you have Jesus saying, "Let this cup." pass from me, hmm. nevertheless not my will but thine be done. It, it seems very much that the cup which he says he has to drink is his death on the cross and he's willing to, to in the end take it but he, he would have God have it pass from him. And what, what is the difficulty with Oh, the difficulty was that you said Jesus knows that he is going to, to right. die. And That's true but remember that, in his finite human consciousness it's not as though Jesus is omniscient and knows everything. He's, he's still, at that moment, willing to pray, if there's some way to do this without my dying, then let's do it that way. But nevertheless, I'll do your will. I'm just saying the closest thing to a proof text would be Hebrews 5, 7, which right. implies that God answered in the affirmative. Yeah, the problem is it doesn't mention Satan or Satan trying no, to kill him. No, and that's, the, that's no. my, my concern. But it says death. You know, yeah. implying yeah. death. Okay, well, right. some other comment. Oh, Charmaine first. Just what I thought about was the cup that he drank was his father's wrath. That's what he was in ag That's what I think. That uh -huh. it, that's what he was in agony over, not dying, but the fact that he was drinking his father's wrath on himself. And one would need to look earlier in the Gospels where Jesus talks about the cup and what that means. When he says to the disciples who want to be at his right and left hand in the kingdom, he says something like that. Are you able to drink the cup that I have right. to drink? Are you willing to be baptized with the baptism I have to undergo? And it does seem that I think it's talking about we pass, what you're God passes to. over us and puts all the wrath on Jesus. Yeah, that's the doctrine of the atonement that I've been studying lately. So, yeah. Okay, Steve. Uh, back to the analogy of the Kerberos. Right. 
uh, seems like it's lacking in that it puts forth either three fathers, three sons, or three Holy Spirits and stuff. Ah. And so it has a real benefit in, in, in helping us in seeing the atonement of the cross. Okay, that forms a wonderful segue to the next section that I want to address. Um, but let me just see if there's any final comment on this before we move along. Yes, Taiwan. I thought this is interesting. Um, if the marriage is according, it's lived out according to God's design and purpose, then that unity is like a bound, um, uh, it's like a, a unit, but two different souls. So, so, um, and, and that unit, uh, and, and I thought, it's interesting that um, that Jesus Christ is the second Adam. So in the beginning, uh, before the fall of man, God and Adam, Adam and Eve, God, man, uh, are in unity. Almost like Jesus and God are in unity until after man fall, then Jesus in unity want to restore, and that's the marriage between the Christ and the church, restore that unity back to God, then, well, I, I, just, I just thought this is, you know, that is, that's the heaven that God wanted to um, realize. Yes. I think that while the marriage analogy can be a useful springboard for thinking about the Trinity, in the end, we're still looking for something that makes these two one being. And it's not enough just to have unity of love or unity of will and harmony. That can exist among diverse beings. And so what we're still looking for is something that would make these three persons one being. And, and that's what my model is attempting to get at. I think these all these personalities relate to function, and you can have this, uh, you can have these diversities in unity if you talk about function and uh, and integrating those three mm -hmm. by function. And uh, on the uh, and in answer to just to modalists or Unitarians or Muslims, every you know most of them talk about the spirit of God. You know, that's, that's another personality, and they talk about, in the case of Muslims, uh, uh, a lot of them believe the Quran is yes. God. So you have multiple, <laughs> multiple persons being identified as God. In the case of the modalist, you have, if you've got redemption ongoing, we talked about this a little bit last week, which was Christ's mission, if he changed into the spirit who's... who's uh, function is to convict of sin, righteousness, and judgment, you would have an offset to, to redemption. So these are, these are just some thoughts in support uh -huh. of, of, of the Trinitarian uh, concept. Yeah. It seems to me that functions alone aren't going to provide a diversity of persons, though the different functions of the persons might address the question that Steve was raising as to what differentiates the Father, the Son, and the Spirit in terms of perhaps the functions they play. So let me go on to that right now. And uh, 
and we'll conclude our time together today by looking at this. Some of you may have noticed that the model that I gave, and I think Steve noticed this, doesn't include the derivation of one person from the other, um, which is enshrined in the confession of the Nicene Creed that the, the Son is begotten of the Father, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made. Now, the model doesn't preclude that either. It just leaves it an open question. So if you want to add the derivation of one person from another, you're free to do so. Um, but on the model as I've laid it out, God could just exist eternally with um, his three um, cognitive uh, uh, sets of cognitive faculties and capacities, three self-consciousnesses. And I frankly think this is a strength of the model, um, because although the doctrine of the generation of the Son from the Father and the procession of the Spirit um, is a part of Nicene Orthodoxy, nevertheless it seems to be a relic of this old Logos Christology of the Greek apologists, which has no warrant in the biblical text, and seems to me to introduce a kind of subordinationism into the Godhead, um, which anybody who wants to affirm the full deity of Christ ought to find really troubling. Biblically speaking, the vast majority of contemporary New Testament scholars uh, recognize that the word which is translated in the authorized version as only begotten, namely monogenes, means simply unique or one and only. It does not mean only begotten. It means unique, one and only. And most of your modern translations will translate uh, verses like John 1.14 and others not as only begotten but as God the one and only or something of that sort. Now, it's true that when this is used in the context of a family, uh, then to say that a child is monogenes, is an only child, would imply that he's only begotten, right? It doesn't mean only begotten, but it, it would imply that this child is um, only begotten. But when you look at the biblical references to monogenes, which would include uh, verses like uh, John 1.14, John 1.18, uh, when it says the only begotten God or the God the one and only who is in the bosom of the Father has made the Father known, they're not talking in these verses about some kind of pre-creation or eternal procession of the divine Son from the Father. Rather, they seem to be connected with the historical Jesus being God's Son. It is in virtue of the incarnation that Jesus is God's special Son. So look, for example, at Luke 1.35 uh, as an illustration of this. Luke chapter 1 and verse 35. And this is the Annunciation to Mary by the angel. In verse 34, the angel, or 35, the angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, 
the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. Here Jesus being the Son is connected with the virginal conception. It's because Jesus had no human father that he could be called God's special Son. Now if that's right, then Jesus being monogenes has less to do with the Trinity than with the Incarnation. Um, and you can see this primitive understanding of um, Jesus' sonship uh, still in the letters of the very early post-apostolic church father, uh, Ignatius. Ignatius describes Christ as one physician of flesh and spirit, begotten and unbegotten, both of Mary and of God. Let me repeat that. He's one physician of flesh and of spirit, begotten and unbegotten, both of Mary and of God. Here, Ignatius associates Jesus being begotten with his flesh being begotten of Mary. But insofar as he is spirit and of God, he is unbegotten, he says. So there's no idea here, in Ignatius at least, that Christ is begotten in his divine nature. The transference of, God's, uh, of Jesus being God's son from Jesus of Nazareth to the pre-incarnate Logos seems to be an invention of these early Greek apologists. Uh, and I think it has helped to depreciate the importance of the historical Jesus for Christian faith. Now, theologically speaking, uh, Orthodox theology rejects firmly any subordination or depreciation, I mean, of the Son uh, with regard to the Father. For example, Athanasius writes, they that depreciate the only begotten Son of God blaspheme God, defaming his perfection and accusing him of imperfection and render themselves liable to the severest chastisement. Here what Athanasius is condemning is subordinationism, um, which is a doctrine inspired by Gnostic or Neoplatonic thought, which conceived of God as the one, a kind of undifferentiated unity, which then in a kind of series of stair steps uh, descends down to the world and in which you could have these kind of intermediate stages that are not equal to the one, but are um, kind of um, lower class uh, deities. Um, so, for example, Oregon, who was trained under the Neoplatonist uh, philosopher Ammonius Saccus, says this about the sun. Um, he speaks of the Son as a deity of the second rank, having a sort of derivative divinity as far removed from that of the Father as he himself is from creatures. He says the Son's divinity is as far from the Father's divinity as it is from the creatures below him. Uh, and that kind of subordinationism was rejected by the church fathers. Uh, Oregon was condemned for holding such a view. 
And yet at the same time, these very same theologians continued to affirm the doctrine that the Logos is begotten of the Father. Um, the Son, in their view, derives his being from God the Father. So Athanasius says this, the Son has his being not of himself, but of the Father. And Hilary, another church father, declares, he is not the source of his own being. It is from his Father's abiding nature that the Son draws his existence through birth. So the, uh, the same theologians that affirmed the full equality of the Son and the Father also affirmed that the Son doesn't have existence in himself, but derives his being from the Father. And I don't think that despite their assurances to the contrary, this can do anything but diminish the Son, uh, because he becomes an effect which is contingent upon the Father. Even if this eternal procession takes place necessarily uh, and apart from the Father's will, the Son is less than the Father because the Father alone exists a se. That is to say, through himself or of himself. He has aseity. The Father exists a se, while the Son exists through another. Um, now there's much more that I, I want to say about that, but we're out of time. So I will simply leave you with that to think about for uh, the coming week. And then next time we'll look at this and bring it to a close as to whether or not we need to affirm that the Son is begotten or generated by the Father and the Spirit proceeding from the Son. Okay, so that's next week. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, these are difficult things to understand, and we submit our wills and our intellects to the teaching of your Holy Scripture on yourself. We pray that as we think about these things, Lord, that you would um, help us to seek to magnify you and your Son in all your greatness. And it is through his name that we pray. Amen. The copyright for the content of this recording is held by Dr. William Lane Craig. For more, go to reasonablefaith.org.